Well, hello there. Welcome to another week of Regulatory Affairs. I'm James Paniki, Senior Editor with MLEX's Asia Bureau, and I'm coming to you from the LexisNexis offices in Melbourne, Australia. It's great to have your company. Now, you don't have to be a European Union antitrust nerd to have heard of Article 102. That's Article 102 of the Treaty on the Functioning of the EU. It has been in the news because it's the law that has been used to inflict some real pain on big tech, the likes of Microsoft, Google, Intel and others. It prohibits abusive conduct by companies that have a dominant position on a particular market. So it's a big law that companies doing business in the EU have to contend with. Yet, thanks to the increased sophistication of lawyers, economists and the companies themselves, Article 102 has lost some of its shine. Add to that mix the 32 rulings that EU judges have issued dealing specifically with 102, and it all means that the landscape is a little trickier for EU enforcers. So what's the European Commission, the EU's competition enforcer, planning to do about that? Well, for starters, it's ridding itself of some unwanted baggage. Lewis Crofts is MLEX's editor-at-large. He recently hosted a panel discussion on this very issue, and he's with us now from Brussels. So, uh, Lewis, if Article 102 is indeed such a powerful tool and has been used so successfully against big tech, why are EU officials tinkering with it now? Well, James, Article 102 really is the Commission's big bazooka. It's very powerful, um, but it's not without its problems the Commission has lost a couple of rather big cases in the courts in recent years. And so they've decided it's time to look again, not at the law. You can't look at the law here. It's, a, it's, a, it's based in the EU treaties. It's, it's carved in stone. But you can look at the way you uh, frame cases, the way you pursue cases. And the Commission's current approach goes back to a policy paper called the Guidance Paper of 2008, now, this was the product of, at the time, a sort of to and fro uh, between two schools of thought. You had the formalist approach, which was all about sort of clear line rules and either it falls into a box or it, fall, or it, or it doesn't fall into a box about whether or not it's illegal. And, you know, the lawyers like this. And there was another school of thought, which was the economics based approach, which was saying, well, hang on, you need to look at all of this conduct in terms of the economics. Look at the numbers and see actually whether it's harming anyone. You can't just say, you know, big is bad. Sometimes big is good because it drives down prices. It helps um, give us you know, a broader range of goods and launch products. So this sort of um, this tension between these two approaches resulted in a 2008 guidance paper. And this guidance paper posited the more economics-based approach. Let's look at the effects. Let's look at the maths. But over time, this paper has become a bit of a bit of a millstone around the Commission's neck. It's led to losses in court. So why are the Commission? Why is the Commission looking at it now? Well, I discussed the changes recently with Lindsay McCullum. She's a top official at DG Competition in charge of this, and we were speaking on a recent European Commission webcast. Here's what she said about the timing. Since 2008, I think we've seen some 32 judgments of the courts in Luxembourg on exclusionary abuses. So it's been a busy time. And that's after some 26 exclusionary decisions that the Commission has adopted. And of course, our national competition authorities have not been absent from this space either. So if you look at that in the round, I think it's a good moment to take stock and to, to think about 
where we want to go in the future. Of course, we have some important judgments pending, but that is always going to be the case. And I certainly don't want to suggest that connecting all the dots in the in the case law and with our enforcement practice is going to be necessarily straightforward. But I think there could really be a value to taking stock and setting out for the future the principles that we think should be guiding our enforcement. And that was the voice of Lindsay McCallum from DG Comp in conversation with Lewis in the Let's Talk competition podcast. And we'll provide a link to the video of that conversation at our website. So, uh, Lewis, what have they changed? Let's go through the changes. Well, as I said, arguably nothing because the law is the law. This is in the EU's treaty. But it's the, this, this guidance paper um, sets out how the Commission prioritises cases, what it's going to look for, which ones it's, it's going to, uh, which cases are going to, what kind of behaviour is going to catch its eye more than something else. And what it's done is it's done some sort of surgical changes to this guidance paper. And I'd say the really big one is that this is not so much, what they're saying now is they're saying it's not so much about an as efficient competitor. So this is the idea that the um, something is only harmful if, say, a big company like Google can exclude another big company or another company that is just as good and just as powerful as Google. Yeah, Competition law, the idea is it shouldn't be about protecting weaker companies. It should be about protecting good competition. So the measuring stick is not weaker companies. The measuring stick is equally efficient companies. Now, this is all a bit arcane, but what it boils down to is competition law looked at through that lens might not pay enough attention to small upstarts who are coming in and creating competition. So, for example, if you're Google or if you're Intel or if you're Qualcomm, whatever, or Facebook, some of your competition is not going to be from a company as equally as brilliant as Facebook or equally as brilliant as Google. It's going to be from a punk upstart who is not yet as efficient, who's not yet as 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 powerful as you, but they're exactly the kinds of, of products. You know, we see, we, we use them. There might be a new app or a new website or a new service. And that's vital competition that needs to be protected in the market. And what the commission is saying in its new approach is we're not just going to look at these equally as powerful, equally as efficient, equally as good, equally as advanced companies uh, as the measuring stick. But we're going to take an overall look at the market to see if the overall structure of the market changes by some of this presumed bad behaviour. That said, you know, that might appear a big change to me or the people the people out there, but this has been a slow development over, over many years that hasn't really kept up to speed with the 2008 guidance. And when I spoke with uh, Lindsay McCullum, she was keen to emphasise that none of the proposed changes today are dramatically affect the way that the Commission goes about reviewing its cases. Here's what she said. To put it very simply, our starting point will remain an assessment of the reality of markets. We set out uh, an analytical framework in the guidance which will remain true. We will want to look at the position of the dominant company, its competitors. We'll want to understand what's influencing competition in the market. We'll want to look at the coverage of the practice that we're investigating. We'll want to look at how the dynamics of competition in the market work and how that practice might interfere with them. So to that extent, I think there is a lot that will stay the same. Lindsay McCallum in a conversation recorded a couple of weeks ago now. So, Lewis, what will happen to the guidance document in the light of these proposed changes? 
So the guidance document gets a couple of uh, a couple of immediate changes to them. So the commission is immediately in March, um, on its own initiative, immediately yeah, removed or changed a couple of couple of articles. Uh, as I said before, this is to reflect this question over equally efficient rivals and the market structure. You know, something can still be harmful even if it harms a less efficient competitor. Um, it's starting to codify some of the changes that have come through the uh, you know, 30-odd judgments, which Lindsay mentioned earlier. Also, what it's doing is it's um, getting under the skin of something, um, of a mathematical test, a statistical test called the as-efficient competitor test. Now, this is a bit of mathematical alchemy, which is used to, which um, a dominant company is used to defend themselves, and essentially looking at the prices and the costs of the company and working out whether or not it's harmful. It has become the absolute battlefield for a lot of these, uh, a lot of these cases when they get to court. It goes back to the idea that the that the commission should be analysing the effects of behaviour and what's the mathematical test for some of these effects. Well, it is this AEC test. Did the commission do one? Did the company do one? Were they looked at? Were they assessed? And so on and so forth. And this test has has sort of taken on more importance over the years and it's become the tripwire for some of these cases a google victory and intel victory and so forth have have referred to this test and so what the commission is trying to do is sort of put that test back in its box a little bit and say look it might be useful in some circumstances but there's definitely no obligation to run one they they really can't help us in certain kinds of conduct so it's trying to sort of staunch the the, the growth of the um, and, and importance of the AEC test. That being the case, what in future should we expect to see in the new guidelines document? So up until now, we've just been talking about the guidance document. That's the old one from 2008. People didn't like that so much. Judges didn't like it because they couldn't quite work, work out what it was. Guidance, you know, it's it's got a sort of plain English meaning, but what's the difference between guidance and guidelines? Guidelines are more important. They tend to um, set out what how the commission should do things. And if they don't follow those guidelines, then they have to explain why. A guidance document was a bit woollier. It was a, was a weasel words about how the commission would just prioritise its cases, not actually how it would run its cases. So that guidance document will be will die and a new guidelines document, which will have a you know, a greater weight will come into force in 2025. Now, the question is, what should go into there? Now, the first thing that we'll do is it will codify these 30-odd judgments that we've heard about. Uh, there's, you know, only so much it can do because there's now so much clarity from the courts or so much explanation from the courts about how to run Article 1 or 2 cases that the Commission has to faithfully represent that. But it must be said, some of those judgments from the courts are a little bit inconsistent some of them leave room for manoeuvre, room for interpretation, and the Commission will wish to chart its own course through those judgments. So the first part of it, I'm sure, will just codify and set out what those judgments say through the eyes of the European Commission. The second question is, do you include in there some of the new stuff? You know, in the in the 20 odd years since that, or 15 years since that guidance paper came into being, the world's changed. We have massive tech companies whose tactics online and on digital markets uh, weren't even really around at the time of the guidance paper. So how, to what extent do does the guidance paper reflect, sorry, the new guidelines paper reflect what they do with leveraging the power of data, what they do with giving preference to their own services. If you 
you know, click on an app store or you click on a on a search engine and that throws up a result which is giving a leg up to one of Apple's or one of Google's own services, for example, how much will that get reflected in the new guidelines? And finally, all of this debate so far has been around what are called exclusionary abuses. So there are two kinds of misbehavior that you can do under Article 102. There's exclusionary, which is forcing out other people from the market or stopping them getting in. You foreclose markets. That is the topic of all this debate and the guidance document and the guidelines document. But in recent years, the Commission has increasingly used the second strand of Article 102, which is about exploitative abuses. This isn't where you force someone out of a market, but it's where the people who are there, your customers, you milk them for even more. You exploit them. You squeeze a higher price out of them or you squeeze more data out of them. And this theory, this this philosophy is... Uh, being used by it hasn't really been used by the commission very much at all until recent months where it's now being deployed against the like of apple against the like of meta's facebook and there are some voices for taking you know these kinds of abuses and putting them in the paper the commission will resist it um and it's you know there are good reasons why it should if you give guidance on something you can tend to tie your hands and they would prefer to have the open fields unadulterated fields of of this field of law to um, pursue its cases rather than tie their hands early but there is there will be a debate about what goes into the guidelines document and sort of you know um, binds the commission somewhat and what stays outside Returning to the big bazooka that you mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, there's no point having that, and that's a technical term, I'm sure, the big bazooka, there's no point (laughs) having that kind of weaponry unless someone's prepared to pull the trigger. I'm assuming there is a trigger to be pulled on a bazooka. So where does all of this conversation, everything that you've mentioned until now, where does this leave enforcement of Article 102? Well, James, this is what it really boils down to, is that... How do you ensure that this law, this rule, can it's quite remain fit for purpose? Because um, you can't, as I said, you can't change the treaty, but you can make it a practical, usable tool. Now, it's been failing in recent years, or it's been the Commission's been struggling to use it, and it's that struggle which has led the Commission to draft new laws such as the Digital Markets Act, which takes on the likes of Apple, Microsoft, Meta, Google and Amazon and others. And that law is an answer to the problems of Article 102. But at the same time, the Commission doesn't want to just bury Article 102. It wants to retain its workability, retain it as a real threat, be able to use it for all the other things that aren't caught by the Digital Markets Act, be able to use it for sectors and industries which aren't digital, it's still used for railways. It's still used for, you know, product pricing and steel smelting and all sorts of unglamorous industries. So they do need to keep Article 102 alive and, and workable. It might not be in the spotlight because the DMA will will do that by, you know, um, um, shackling the power of some of these large companies. And so the Article 102 could end up playing second fiddle anyway but it's it's important that the commission retains the ability to use it as a tool at the moment it says and some judges say that maybe with the sophistication of economics with the sophistication of technology it might be getting just too complicated to do a case now 
companies and their lawyers will reject that and they'll say you've levied billions and billions in fines you're doing you're doing you're doing okay with this law but that's what the commission is trying to do you know as Lindsay McCullum explained to me these changes may be beneficial to companies being investigated because they will now know the exact limitations of of investigations and the commission's approach you know to date it's been a little woolly from an enforcer's perspective, I think the other thing we see, and I see that with our case teams, is that they're always keen to do a bit more, to send another request for information, to think about some more quantitative data, to get a few more internal documents to review. But Article 102 enforcement has such an important role in our societies that we have to make sure that there's a limit to what the enforcer needs to do to bring a case forward. So I think that concept of workability in terms of enforcement is also going to be close to our hearts when we think about future guidelines. Lindsay McCallum is Deputy Director General for Antitrust at DG Comp, and that was from an earlier conversation with Lewis Crofts. Lewis, thank you so much for chatting to me today. Really interesting developments. Let's uh, talk again soon. Thanks, James. Lewis Crofts is MLEX's editor-at-large. He was speaking to us from Brussels. And we'll post a link both to the video of that panel discussion and to a recent article by Lewis and Nicholas Hurst on the tinkering that's going on around Article 102 and what it means. It will all be at our website, mlexmarketinsight.com. That's M-L-E-X marketinsight.com. There's a tab there called News Hub. Just head there, click on Podcasts, and the links will be associated with today's show. You'll also be able to read some of the very best of MLEX's reporting and analysis. Now, I'm afraid that's all we have time for today. We'll be back in your feed next week at more or less the same time. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify and Stitcher. The MLEX podcast is produced and presented by me, James Paniki. It's published thanks to the ruthless efficiency of MLEX's London-based marketing team. And our executive producer is Richard Thompson. From everyone here at MLEX and LexisNexis, thank you for your company. I'll see you again very, very soon. Bye for now.